Um, well, so I, I'm really going to hit a lot on prayer this morning, and, um, and I really want to talk about what is prayer, how is it used, and what empowers or saps it. So those three things, what is prayer, how, could it be, how is prayer used, and what empowers prayer, and what saps prayer from its power. And so, you know, I remember when I was, I think it was 1980, I just moved uh, from one town in, in uh, Brun- from Brun- Brunswick, Georgia, to Statesburg, Georgia. Small town, agricultural town, and there wasn't much to do. And one of the things that was big that was coming to town was Georgia wrestling. It was pre-WWF, and I don't know if any of y'all followed wrestling, uh, but when I was uh, nine years old, that was, that was pretty exciting. And so I remember before my brother Brent and I were going to this wrestling match that was held at the Hannerfield House, which was at the local college there, um, I remember kneeling down by my bed and saying, God, I pray for this match. I pray that Ted DiBiase, who was one of the wrestlers, who was the good guy, they would beat the Freebirds in this match. And I remember, I don't know if y'all remember the Freebirds, they were these three guys, and I, I don't know how it worked out, Ted DiBiase and some guy who was uh, called Wild, I think that was his name, and then some other guy, were versus the, the, the Freebirds. And I remember why, going to this uh, Hannerfield house, it was probably double the size of this with the match, with the, the ring in the middle, and seeing, being exposed to all kinds of different cultures. There was, there was everybody was there watching this. Then I remember thinking, this is, this is a strange culture. There's even a grandmother up front who was throwing popcorn up on the, up on the ring. And I was like, we're, we're you know, this is, this is very strange. But I remember when finally Ted DiBiase and his crew, they won. I remember thinking, thank you, God. You answered my prayer. And, um, you know, we all know now, I hope this is not a spoiler alert, that wrestling is not real, right? And, um, but I, I remember thinking, was that a misuse of prayer? Um, we'll, we'll, hopefully we'll get into, um, maybe get into that here. But really, what is prayer? It's a dialogue between God and His people. Um, and oftentimes we're, we're confused. Some, sometimes you might ask, why pray if God is sovereign? Because it even says, pray according to His will. So if He already knows how you should pray, then why even pray? Well, that question a bit, it, it betrays your understanding of prayer. And it betrays my understanding, because I ask that sometimes. But prayer is, as much as it's a request, it's also a relationship. And so I think we need to see that prayer, uh, I said a couple things, prayer is relational and it's conforming. So let, let's go into that. Prayer is relational and conforming. It's about um, bonding as, as much as begging. It's about asking as much as it's, it's uh, linking. It's about connection as much as it's invocation. It's about imploring as much as, um, or about relating as much as imploring. And so it's very relational. Um, At the heart of prayer, so a theologian once said this, at the heart of prayer is a relationship. Um, It's interesting, um, you know, I have have a business and we have a warehouse. And sometimes I'll take my my kids there and they'll walk through the warehouse, just kind of walk through it like they own it. And in a sense, they do. Because if I own it and they are my heirs, then they own it too. But they walk through it with a bit of a swagger that my, that my, my employees can't, right? And, and in fact, my kids will come to me and ask me questions or interrupt me or do things that will frustrate me that if my employees did that, I would fire them. 
But it's at that moment that I feel more like a parent than ever before. Because of our relationship, they feel like they have access. And they do. They have confidence. And so prayer, it's interesting. If you look at verse 14 when we're talking about prayer, it says, and this is the confidence that we have. It follows verse 13, which Adam talked about last week, which is confidence. It says, and these things, verse 13, I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may know that you have eternal life. So confidence in prayer is really based on your confidence of salvation. So let me say it this way. If you are not very confident in your prayers, then it may raise question, are you confident in your salvation? Um, I, I just got through... I listen to, I, I drive around a lot. I'm in sales, so I'm in the truck a lot. I listen to a lot of history on CD. And I just got through with a 22-lecture series on the Black Death. Now, some of you listening to 22 lectures on the Black Death may seem like Black Death itself, but it was incredibly, it was incredibly enjoying for me because it, she went into the history of medieval society and church. And medieval society was really based on three classes. It was based on like, almost a caste system. Those who fight, which was the king and the knights. Those who pray, which was the, the nuns and the priest. And then those who work, which was the serfs. And if you even look at castles, castles were, were built that way. So that only if you were part of that upper caste system could you go to the top of the castle. And if you were a priest or nun, you went to the middle part of the castle. And then those who worked the, in the feudal society were the bottom part of the castle. And so the whole society was set up that way. But when the Black Death came, it, it undid that because people were dying. There weren't many workers left, so workers who worked for, in the feudal society could go to different places. Now they were more mobile, and they got better wages as a result of it. And so the Black Death really undid a lot of the medieval society and church as well. But one of the things it exposed was it exposed their assurance, their understanding of salvation, and out of that, because of the Black Death, it really led to, it was a, a factor that led to the Protestant Reformation. And here's how. Is that, that people at that time in the, in the church believed in something called purgatory. And so if people were dying off in huge waves, 50%, so that means one out of everybody, one out of everybody in this room, one out of every two, sorry, I don't know my math very well, one out of every two would, would die from this, this plague, and there was, there was no cure for it. And so they thought the end of the world was coming. So people were writing their wills. They were, they were giving away uh, their, their riches to others. They, they were, some were leading to licentiousness. Others were becoming very religious. They were going on pilgrimages. And they even thought that if they went on a pilgrimage, that if they crawled on their hands and knees to whatever relic it was, to a nearby city or a far city, that they could, uh, it, would, it would assure them that they would go to heaven and not stay in purgatory, purgatory too long. And so because they were not sure, they didn't have assurance of their faith, it caused them to do crazy things, almost everything but pray. That was one of the things that kind of came out of those lectures, is that it, it, when, when you pray, it should be based on your assurance of salvation because you have access to the Father. Just like my kids walking into my office and they can have a swagger about them, a confidence that they can come and ask me a question. Unlike my employees, you are a son or if you're a son or a daughter of the king, then you should have a confidence in your relationship with God that you can approach him in prayer. 
That's what John is trying to get across here. It's very relational. So prayer is based on your assurance of salvation. Uh, even Romans 8, 14 and 15 says, Many of those who are being led by the Spirit are sons of God, so they may cry out, Abba, Father. Now this is interesting. Abba, Father. Abba, Father is not what an 8-year-old or a 12-year-old or a 15-year-old kid says to God. It's what a baby says to God. And that's what God calls us to approach him as, as, as a child, as an infant, as, as a, a baby crying out. That's all a baby can do is cry out. And that's how God wants us to approach him, in that, that, same, that same vein. Well, a prayer is, is relational. It's also conforming. We conform to those who we're in presence of oftentimes. Uh, Stacy's not here this weekend. She's with about five or six other ladies um, down in Charleston. And they get together once a year. They've been doing it for about 25 years. And they call themselves the Abigails because that was the fir- when they first got together, they studied the, uh, about Abigail, David's wife, and about how she was virtuous. And since then, they just said, well, we're going to be the Abigails. And uh, really, it's, it's changed. I mean, even McRae's middle name is Abigail because of that, because of these women getting together once a year, and they, they have, they're in each other's lives. But I always notice when Stacy comes back, because she'll have certain mannerisms or tics that some of the other ladies do. And there's this one, one uh, lady, she kind of lifts up her, her face like this, her nose, and she'll put her lip down in a certain way, and I go, you've been around Sandy this weekend. Because Sandy does that. And I'll notice that stacy has been around, or if I'm around the guys, I'll go away on a guy's weekend. She'll go, you've been around guys a lot. And specifically this guy, this guy, because you're acting like him right now. It's because we naturally conform. And some of us conform to those we're around more often than others. Um, But we all conform to those who are around. And that is what prayer is about. When you're in relationship with God, it's about conforming your will. John Stott, the theologian, said, Prayer is not a convenient device for imposing our will upon God or bending His will to ours, but the prescribed way of subordinating our will to His. So, so prayer is about changing us. Not so much making a request. Though God does want us to ask, seek, and knock, it's about subordinating our will to Him. Now let me say this. Um, you might see in there it says, Great, we can ask whatever we want, we want as long as we ask it according to his will. So again, you might say, well, that seems like that just undoes. I can't ask whatever I want. Yeah, I want a Ferrari truck. I want a truck and a Ferrari together, right? I want, a, I want those two together. Can I have that? Well, is that his will? You need to see, you need to ask the question, is it in line with his will? And let me just say this, that the key, and, and John nails this throughout this whole passage. I mean, no, this passage, this book, is that obedience is the atmosphere for prayer, okay? It's the atmosphere for which prayer really thrives. And let me say it this way, that obedience is not a, um, it's not something that we do so we can get our way. Obedience is conforming us to the will of God so that whenever we're praying in His will, we know what His will is, right? It's walking in the light. God doesn't answer our prayers just because we're obedient. Though I'll say this, There's plenty of scriptures to prove that when we're disobedient, God might not hear our prayers. When we're disobedient to him, a consistent trend of disobedience, he might not hear our prayers. Okay? And I say that not to go back to works righteousness. Again, it's about 
praying in his will. And when we're obedient, we know what his will is. So that's a bit of what prayer is. How is it used? Or how is, how is this weapon of prayer deployed? Oftentimes, we kind of pray concentrically, right? So we pray for ourselves. Then we pray for those who are around us, family, friends, which I'll call tribe, our tribe, right? And, and, and then we finally pray for maybe those beyond that, if we get to it, if we have time, right? And so, in, clearly in this passage, uh, John is setting up, he's saying pray, and have a life of obedience based on your assurance of salvation, right? Not on obedience, but obedience is the atmosphere in which prayer will thrive. And now, if you see a brother or sister in sin, I want you to pray for them, okay? So he immediately goes to intercession here. And that's not, a, that's not different from what Paul said in Galatians 6. He says, if, if a man's caught in trespass, you who is spiritual, restore him. Uh, in James, the other apostle said in James 5.16, it says, confess your sins to one another, pray so that you may be healed. This is a theme running throughout the, the scriptures, is that there's, there's something about being healed and prayer are, are commingled together, okay, spiritually as well as physically. But there is something here, it says, what are, it says pray for your brother. So let, let me define that. So some commentators would say brothers are just Christians, uh, other commentators would say, no, it's more, of, it's more broader than that. It's your neighbors. And I would, I would say, I think this passage is talking about more, more broad than just those who are Christians. Because especially in our culture here in the South, there's plenty of people who say they are brothers or sisters in Christ, and they may not know him. Okay? For the longest time, for about 20 years of my life, I said I was a brother of, uh, a brother of, of, of Christ, and yet I didn't know him. And so I, would, I think I would be in this category of those who claim to be Christians but really aren't. And these prayers are for that. So whenever I say that there's consent, we pray concentrically, you pray for yourself, then your tribe, and then those around you, I, I really think this passage is talking about we need to pray for all of those people, your tribe, but then beyond that, for those around you. And we even sit in tribes, right? So, you know, there, this, this is the, the front right of the, the church tribe. And I know people who sit around us, right? And then there's usually the campus outreach tribe here. You can kind of graph this out, you know. Um, we got the Les tribe over there, which it, it is a tribe, right? And so, you know, we kind of go around all the different tribes here. We sit almost tribal because we, 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 it's comfortable. And a bit of our prayers can be like that, Right? The Johnsons, I think you're all part of the, the Les tribe. There you go. Okay. Yep. So um, I, I'll, I'm going to come out next week. I'll go ahead and graph all the different tribal locations here. But we pray, we tend to pray for just our tribe. We pray, tend to pray for just us and our, our family. And I have to say that it's just my prayers tend to be selfish. We need, I think John is calling us to pray beyond our walls, beyond our gates. I don't know if how many of y'all have seen the movie Black Panther. Um, raise your hand if you've seen it. Okay. Well, I, I don't know if I'm about to spoil it for you if you haven't, but it's been out long enough, so you should have seen it. So, oh well. Um, <laughs> but really, the debate of that movie, I know, close your ears, Dave Emmerich. Um, the, the debate of the movie is We've got something great here, and in in, I want to get the, the kingdom of Wakanda, 
right? So that's their, the, the kingdom uh, of which Black Panther is the king. And the debate going back and forth is we've got something great here. We've got advanced civilization and technology. And should we, one, be good stewards and not let others destroy it? Or should we share it with those around us that are impoverished? And that's the going back and forth. And, you know, some of the, the antagonist says we should do it violently. And the protagonist, Black Panther, says, no, should we do it? And then they're debating about that. But that movie, watch it from that perspective, because that is a great picture of the church. And I'll, I'll say this, that's a great picture of this church. Because here at the Church of Redeemer, we have some great things. We have incredible fellowship. Um, compared to the churches, we serve a lot. We have a, a lot of churches have problems getting people to serve. And though we may seem like we have problems, that we want more people to serve in children's ministry or set up, whatever it is, as a percentage, we serve a lot. Um, you know, meals for people who, are, who are just have a pregnancy or, or a new birth or going through something tough or prayers for them. We have something amazing here at this church. But as Christ went to the seven churches and, and would, gave pronouncement of encouragement and admonition to each one of them, the admonition I would say to this church is we need to think beyond this tribe. We need to pray beyond this tribe. That's why I, I love it each week when Adam stands up and presents the gospel clearly and asks, if you don't know Jesus, you can know him today. And that, that's why we're going to be having the Easter celebration is we're trying to get beyond the walls of this tribe, that we're trying to influence this community of Indian Trail, of North Carolina, of that around us, of those at our work, of those at our school, that as a, as a whole, I, you might not say this passage is about evangelism, but I think it is about evangelism and prayer. It's about those who claim to be Christians and maybe aren't and are walking down a pathway that's taking them farther from Christ, and you're asking, God, restore this person, bring them back to the gospel, or bring them to the gospel for the very first time. That's a bit of what this is about. Um, it's interesting, you know, Daryl read in Genesis 18 about Abraham was, was interceding for Sodom. And most of us, when we think through Sodom, we, uh, we automatically think of, of course, Sodom and Gomorrah, and, and the term Sodomite comes from that, and it's about homosexuality, and it's just an evil city, and it was an evil city, but I would, it'd be interesting, I want to read out of Ezekiel 16, it says this, this is talking about, I think it's Ezekiel sixteen forty seven, and it says, um, uh, 48, yep. Um, as I live, declares the Lord God, Sodom, your sister and her daughters, have not done as your daughters have done. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had arrogance, abundant food, and careless ease, and she did not help the poor and needy. It's a little bit different picture about Sodom. That possibly God was destroying it because they had abundance and they were not sharing with those who were needy. Their wickedness was because they were hoarding. You know, the, if you watch some of the TV shows, one of which is 
you're kind of mesmerized by because it's, it's like passing an accident. You're just mesmerized by it, but it, you know you shouldn't be. And it's one of those is on, I think, Lifetime called hoarders. It's people who just collect. And, and you're like, this is, you know, they go through and they try to clean out their house for them. And half the time they don't want them to. They want to hold on to what they have. Is God saying that was the sin of Sodom? And could that be the sin of this church? Is that we have something great and we're, we're hoarding it. We're not praying for those in our community. We're not praying for those who we see are leading sins that are, are, are mortal. And so we, like Abraham, need to not only intercede for our tribe, but we need to intercede for, for whole cities that are, that are on their way to being destroyed. Well, it says in this passage, there's a sin leading to death. Now, this is a hard passage to understand. A sin leading to death. Now, commentators say that could be one of two things. It could, one, well, they say there's lots of things. And in the end, after reading all the common commentators, I have to conclude I'm not sure what it means. But let me say this, is that it could be it's just a grievous sin. And I don't mean just a grievous sin, but it's a sin that's grievous so much that God says, all right, that's beyond that you've walked over the line. I'm going to, I'm going to take you now. Kind of like Ananias and Sapphira. Sapphira who, who lied about, they lied to the Holy Spirit, and so God struck them dead. That's one option. It could be another one. Uh, it could be just apostasy. Um, and literally that word means to stand away from, to divorce yourself. I tend to think that this is what, it says a sin leading to death, that that's what this passage is referring to, that it's referring to apostasy or moving away from God. Steve Farrar in his book, great book uh, called Finishing Strong, talks about in 1945 there were three men that were evangelists in the Chicago area and that were moving throughout the country and even overseas. Those three men were uh, Charles Templeton, Bron Clifford, and Billy Graham. And out of those three, if, if that was a horse race and you had to put your money on anybody, it would have been on the other two other than Billy Graham because they were very gifted preachers. It said about Charles Templeton that he was the most gifted evangelist in the country. And Bron Clifford was said, it was written of him, that he was the most gifted preacher in, in the, the whole history of the church. It's pretty interesting. You've probably never heard of those other two. That was in 1945, and they went around overseas to Europe as well as in the United States for the youth of Christ. Um, but by, ni- by um, 1950, Charles Templeton had uh, mo- moved out of the ministry and said he wanted a radio newspaper career and had uh, said that he was questioning God and finally wrote a book called Farewell to God where he was saying he was agnostic at that point. And just five years after that was written. Bron Clifford didn't fare, fared even worse. By 1954, he'd left his wife and two Down syndrome kids um, because of alcoholism and financial malfeasance. Died of uh, liver cancer at 35 years old in Amarillo, Texas. His last job was selling used cars on the Texas Panhandle. And he died in a motel. Someone said he was unwept, unhonored, and unsung. 
Both those men had walked away from the Lord. It's interesting, just on the, the, the Billy Graham dying here, that, that bring this back up, that he had a life of integrity, of walking in the light. So I think the sin leading to death is probably apostasy here. And so you might say, so is God saying don't pray for them? Uh, you have to think through this. You don't know, one, when that person's going to die, right? So it says the sin leading to death. We don't know that you could see someone walking away from the Lord. I think God's calling us to pray for them because, you, one, you don't know when they're going to die. Um, you don't know where they are um, spiritually, but you can see that they are sinning, and maybe they're, they're actively saying, uh, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. I don't want any of God. Um, I think the Scriptures can say you still pray for them. Um, but, but I want to bring this question back to you as well, because I, I had this idea when I was young, is that I thought, I'm not going to follow God right now. I grew up in the church, but I'm really going to get serious about God when I'm older. So if you're young, I'd say if that is a, a, a thought that's entered your mind, Ecclesiastes 12 says, remember the God of your youth while you're young because the days that you get older, life will get tougher. And you don't know when your time is up. You don't know if you're going to die like Bron Clifford at age 35 or if you're going to die at age 99. But if, but if you see someone walking away from the Lord God calls us to pray for that person. Um, well, let me ask you this. The last question is, what empowers prayer and what saps it? Well, ultimately, obedience, I think, empowers prayer. Okay? Now, I know that sounds a bit like are we going back to um, uh, legalism, and I don't mean that. I mean it's just the atmosphere for understanding God's will. So the more obedient you are, the more you understand the will of God and that you can pray in His will. It's not meritorious-based. Answer prayer is just about walking in the light. It doesn't mean if you walk in the light, you're going to have answer prayer. But it does mean as you walk in the light, you will be praying in His will. Well, the contrast is true as well, that disobedience is not walking in the light. And it starts to obscure your understanding of prayer, and it starts to obscure your prayers and saps them. I want to read something that was um, my mom wrote. She's actually the um, chaplain of her garden club in Georgia. I don't know who's a part of a garden club here, uh, but my mom is, and she, she writes these kind of weekly um, devotionals for them, and this is called Weed Alert. And it says, by accident, pure chance, I came across a manifesto, a constitution that was written by weeds. It says this, number one, disguise yourself to look like the flower you were growing by. So this is written by weeds to weeds, right? Number two, soak up every bit of nutrient from the plant you are imitating. Number three, bring in a new weed when your species is hit hard. Number four, go underground, she put pun intended, when the gardener tries to get rid of you. Number five, spread your seeds far and wide so that your Children will be everywhere. Number seven, be alert. We will contact you as new information develops. 
And so the reason I bring that up and the reason she wrote it too as well is that sin is very much like weeds in your life. Sin disguises itself as something righteous oftentimes. We, we justify it. Um, sin uh, that's in our life, we, we, we justify it. Um, it comes across as very pleasing like a plant, but it's very misleading. And eventually it saps us of our life. Which interesting, you notice that John ends the chapter with little children, guard yourselves from idols. Idol Idolatry is an inordinate love for someone or something other than God. So idolatry is an inordinate love for someone or something other than God. So it's giving yourself, it's letting weeds grow in your heart. It's letting sin take over your life. And if that's the case, pray that you hope that someone in this church will be praying for you. And if you see that weeds taking over someone else's life, that's the person God calls us to pray for. Well, I'll conclude with this. In Genesis 18, when Abraham was praying, he was, he was talking to God. And in that passage, uh, Daryl read one verse, but that whole passage has Abraham going through this unique dialogue with God. And he, God's already determined, it's, it's pretty funny when he says, he's talking to the angels, God is, and Abraham's right here, and he says, should I tell him what we're going to do? Which, you know, if you say that, you're basically saying, hey, I'm letting you in about what we're going to do. So um, he says, we're going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham says, well, God, and kind of meekly comes to him and says, let me just ask you a question. If there were 50 righteous people there, would you destroy it? He says, no, I wouldn't. So Abraham says, okay, I'm sorry, let me just ask you this question here. If there were 40, would you destroy it? No, I wouldn't destroy it. And Abraham walks him down until there's 10. He says, if there were 10 righteous people in the city, would you destroy it? He said, no, I would not. But then it's strange that Abraham departs at that point. It, it just ends. It says, then Abraham went his way. And if you, if you study it, it's because uh, Abraham knew there was none righteous to really save that city. And this is the beautiful thing, is that we have one that is righteous. Because we can claim the record of Jesus Christ to say, no, there is one that record that we can claim. So that you don't destroy this people. God, please take his record and put it upon these people that I see their sin and do not destroy them. That's how God calls us to pray. He calls us to pray like Abraham. And notice this interesting. Abraham knew Lot was getting out at that point. And Abraham's family wasn't affected by this. Abraham was interceding for those outside his tribe. Church of the Redeemer, that is the kind of prayer that we need to have with God. Those outside these block walls. Those outside our life group. Those outside where we, we typically have our, our group of people. So God is calling us to pray for those beyond us to have an impact um, let me pray for us. Father, I pray for...